0: Welcome back to the 26th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the insights to be gained from what has happened recently in the UK, and one more story about how the bottom 50% of the population was affected a little bit differently than you may have thought by the pandemic era. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. Liz Truss is officially the shortest serving PM ever in UK history. So my question to y'all is, did she even stand a chance? I mean, was there any situation where she came out on top, or was she really just the fall guy? And you look at how quickly Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson got out of there, and you have to ask the question, did he see this coming, especially now that he's putting his name back in the hat to become PM again. So any opinions you have on it, throw it in the comments section down below. Love to hear anything you all have to say. Now let's get into our first story from Politico. Did Liz Truss finally kill the tax cut zombie? So this author argues that Liz Truss has finally made it clear that tax cuts don't work. Quote, for years now, it's been clear that there's no strong evidence that tax cuts fuel economic growth. But Republican politicians in the United States kept trying it anyway. It was an idea that wouldn't die. End quote. And, you know, the author never really mentions why people love this idea of tax cuts. And I think that we need a little bit of context, or at least we need to have a little bit of understanding why so many people, including different economists, now they're, they're divided on this, and as the author brings up, there are economists that don't see tax cuts working. And I'll bring up the counterpoints, but we should at least talk about why, in theory, tax cuts can work. So, one, if you cut the amount of taxes that people have to pay, meaning state tax, federal tax, if you are not forcing them to pay the government a larger percentage of their earnings, then they have more money to spend. Therefore, they're going to go out to their local town, go to their local boutique, their shoemaker, uh, maybe even Macy's, if they have a mall, and they're going to spend that money. Meaning... That, that's more money for the economy to thrive. That means people put more money into these stores, and then these stores can use that money for more value creation. Maybe Macy's comes out with a new prefer, uh, perfume line that people really love. Or maybe if you're buying a phone from Apple, now that Apple has more sales and can have more revenue, they can actually invest in more R&D. Or imagine companies like Boeing and Airbus. They get a large percentage of their majority from the government, but also they get a large majority of their money from people going on flights and these airliners buying their planes. So if there's more money in the economy, people are more willing to travel. Therefore, these airliners make more money. They can buy more planes. Therefore, Boeing and Airbus or even Other military contractors have a little bit more money to spend on R&D, which helps the American government and the military. And a lot of military spending, a lot of this government research, has ended up benefiting us as citizens. Uh, Think of microwaves. There are a few other patents that I don't remember off the top of my head, but the really informed people can throw them down in the comments. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is businesses are also able to create more value, like I was describing. But instead of it being from customers giving them money because these customers aren't taxed as much, it's actually because businesses aren't taxed as much either, meaning that they can reinvest their revenues to build more value, like I had just described, or even they can raise wages for their employees, and then that kind of has a cyclical effect. The employees make, higher money, make more money due to higher wages, then they can go out and spend at other locations. Those companies can pass along those earnings to their employees, so on and so forth. So that's the general consensus behind tax cuts. And there's one, or not general consensus, I should say the general opinion of people who like tax cuts. And there's one really big counter argument that, you know, I can think of off the top of my head, which is responsible people, when they get that money, they're not as likely to go out and spend it. They're going to say, okay, I have a little bit of extra money now. I'm going to put it in the bank. I'm going to put it in my savings and not use it until retirement, which is a big, big counterpoint to this argument. Because while a lot of people are going to go out and spend – There are a a lot of people as well, even the people that are getting a little bit older, that are starting to think, okay, no, 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 this extra money that I'm getting, I actually need to save it for when I'm older. I need to be responsible here. Then the counter to that is maybe they throw it in the stock market rather than keeping it in a savings account. But either way, that money is still idle. It is not actively in the economy going to different companies, allowing them to raise their revenues and therefore pass it on to their employees and so on and so forth. So the reason this is a big conversation and why the author is talking about it is because Truss, within her first few days of office, said that she was going to implement her massive tax cuts. And, quote, almost immediately, the British economy was hammered with high interest rates and a plunge in value of the pound. Truss's polls numbers nosedived, And she quickly backed down. End quote. And you know there was this idea that she was going to, she was trying to emulate Thatcher. And the author points out that, that while Thatcher didn't necessarily cut taxes at the beginning of her term, she did cut them at the end. But Liz Truss tried to come in a little bit too quickly, and the amount of debt that the UK government is in, which we'll discuss in the next article more thoroughly. And the high amount of inflation did not lead to the the correct time to do these tax cuts. Unlike Thatcher, who actually made a lot of corporations private when she first came in. That was her main goal when she first got into office. And later on, when there was more growth in the economy, that's when she started to cut taxes so people could actually feel the benefits of that economic growth. And the author goes on to really give us a little bit of you know context around the modern tax cuts because there were tax cuts during the Bush administration as well as during the Trump administration and the author tries to, you know, explain why these tax cuts didn't necessarily work compared to the ones that were present during the Bush and Trump era. And you'll notice a lot here the author is really trying to relate this to America because If you haven't noticed, recently it's been observed that the U.K. is kind of a bellwether for America. They put in a conservative uh, prime minister. We put in a conservative president. There was a push for more nationalism, a more national identity with Brexit in the U.K. And over the last few years, you've seen a, a lot more nationalistic rhetoric from different people on the right. So... As I was saying, Britain is kind of a bellwether. And that's why the author is trying to compare the policies that were just enacted in Britain to some of the policies that were enacted during the U.S. uh, history. More recent history, but we do talk about Reagan a little bit. Quote, Trust tax cuts at a time when interest rates were edging higher, fueling worry among investors. When Trump cut taxes, interest rates were lower. On the other hand, interest rates were at a similar level during the George W. Bush administration, and they were significantly higher when Reagan was cutting taxes, suggesting that something else is going on. The ways of financial markets are inscrutable, even the people who constitute those markets. But there do seem to be some big differences between the Britain and the U.S. That suggests the United States may not face a similar crisis the next time its government proposes big tax cuts. So the, the author really goes on to point out that Britain's debt has never been this high before. And that that causes a lot of speculators and investors in Britain to worry. If you know anything about the U.S., if there's one thing that you've probably heard a thousand times, or at least, uh, you know, if you're not political, you probably heard people talk about it, it's the deficit. The U.S. works on a massive deficit, and we have always been in debt ever since coming off the gold standard. So, you know, the American investors are kind of okay with that thought process, whereas the British investors, they are not okay with a government that's in big debt. And what was happening in Britain right now, obviously, the inflation is extremely high. And in order to fund some of the programs Liz Trust wanted to fund, she would have to take out debt because she's also cutting the tax rate. She's doing huge tax cuts. Therefore, where's that money coming from? Oh, it's coming from debt financing. And a lot, that scared a lot of British investors and speculators. Whereas the American investors and speculators, they still have faith in the U.S. government because we've slowly, slowly increased the deficit ever so slightly. So people still have faith in the American system. Or at least this is what this author says. The next article gives us a little bit more of a, a negative viewpoint. And I'll, I'll close here with one quote from this political article. Quote, American officials are nervously examining whether the U.S. could face its own turmoil after the U.K. calamity, and no one knows what will happen next. But examining the recent past suggests one reason markets reacted so badly to Truss's policy is that investors had not gotten used to the idea that U.K. is now a country with permanently high debt, just like the U.S., end quote. So that kind of summarizes nicely what I was saying. Now, you know, for the more cynical of my viewers, let's move on to uh, the Axios article. UK's global warning, the bill has come due. And like I said, this article is, is a little bit more, if you can't tell by the, the title, or sorry, the headline, then this, you know, this article is a lot more negative when, you know, looking at the crisis in Britain right now. Quote, why it matters. Investors who are selling bonds in order to register their disapproval of policy choices are calling the shots on Wall Street and in the global halls of government. And as inflation and debt both soar, the market is much less forgiving of grandiose taxation and spending plans, end quote. So the author is really getting at the point here that the era of the free lunch is over that these investors are not going to keep lending out to the government and buying their bonds if they don't have faith in them. And this crisis in UK may be the the moment that awakens a lot of investors that, oh, maybe we shouldn't put as much faith in the government. Maybe those high deficit numbers are actually scary. Maybe the investors are starting to pull back a little bit. And also as I will get on into here, maybe they're starting to understand or at least disapprove more of the practice of quantitative easing that has really been in place since 2008. So, you know, instead of the U.K. markets not being used to a state with a high amount of debt, the author is trying to point out that, you know, this is kind of a recoil to modern monetary theory. For years, the U.S. and, you know, other countries around the world has been spending money that they don't have and have justified it by really betting on the future. And that's what quantitative easing, along with this new monetary theory, is all about. It's all, we can take out the money now because if we put the money into the economy, the economy will grow. Therefore, we'll have money in the future to pay back those debts. And, you know, that that sounds It sounds phenomenal. It sounds great. Yeah, keep investing in the economy and it will just continue to grow, you know, completely independently of fact. That, you know, I wish that was the case. But at the end of the day, if something happens, if there's a financial crisis like 2008 where people lose confidence in the system or the Great Depression where there was a run on the banks What happens when there's a run on the government to get their money? What happens when all these people come back saying, yeah, I'll take the penalty for the bond. I I won't get its full value. I just want to get my money now because otherwise I may not be able to get it here in a few months. So this is the dangerous game we're playing. If we're betting on the future, the future has to be stable, and we can't predict the future. So by this insanely, insanely positive maybe naive uh view of the future where oh we're just going to continue to grow there's there's no stopping it and this mixed with the you know idea of quantitative easing you know it's really a dangerous prospect in my mind and for those that don't know what quantitative easing is I, i have a little quote here you know pulled straight off of google Quote, quantitative easing is a monetary policy action whereby a central bank purchases government bonds or other financial assets in order to inject monetary reserves into the economy to stimulate economic growth. So basically, the central bank is saying, OK, you know what? We are going to put more money into the economy by buying these these bonds. We're going to you know, give the government our money. And, you know, the central bank is essentially a government agency. So it's the government buying its own bonds, essentially. It's saying, oh, no, no, we need more money in the economy. This is how we're going to go about doing it. And, you know, that doesn't sound too bad. Maybe Maybe that doesn't sound too bad to you. But think about it this way. The government's buying its own bonds. It is betting on itself. And if the government fails, then at the end of the day... It's just more money that would technically have to be paid back. Oh, and it can forgive its own loans, fine. But even then, injecting this money into the economy causes inflation. And inflation's okay to some degree. We're gonna see it either way. Because as the value of goods go up, wages have to go up to compete with it. Wages go up, the values of good goes up the values of goods go up, so on and so forth. We naturally see inflation but when they are buying their own bonds and injecting this extra money into the economy it causes inflation to happen faster and that's not necessarily a good thing so there's another quote here in the last quote in the last 15 years rich countries could enact financial stimulus tax cuts and massively replace lost income without worrying too much about inflation or spiking interest rates but the world is drowning in debt, and the U.K.'s woes strongly suggest investors won't be continuing to support reckless government spending, end quote. So this is really a scary prospect in my mind, because if investors lose faith in the U.S. that the U.S. can pay them back, even not you know right now, eventually won't be able to pay them back, then the whole self-perpetuating loop kind of falls in on itself like i mentioned there will kind of there won't be a run on the us government that that's you know kind of negative a little bit alarmist but it's going to cause people who are willing to lose the value of their bond right now to go to the government and say okay like i said earlier i don't I don't care if I get a 5% loss on this. I just want to make sure I have my money. The ironic thing is that if everybody does that, then the money has no value. At the end of the day, if everybody comes running for their money at the same time and the U.S. government isn't able to pay them back, then the U.S. dollar is going to mean very little because the U.S. dollar is only backed by the assurance that the U.S. government is able to... Give it value. It is a fiat currency. It doesn't have anything backing it up. It doesn't have the gold standard. It is purely based on the fact that the US government gives it value. So if everybody makes a run for the government money and then the government collapses and can't pay back its debts, the, we're going to have hyperinflation meaning the dollar will become practically useless. So it's kind of a a catch-22 because if those people that don't have faith in the government, that they'll be able to pay them back in the future, if they go and take their money out of the system, then they're only guaranteeing that the U.S. government will not be able to pay them back in the future, or at least not anytime soon. So they got us kind of caught in a catch-22 here. I and mean, you kind of don't have any option but to stay in the system and just have faith that it will all work out, which is ironic. But the author's trying to get at here that investors, people that make money off of this, are not going to just willy nilly cut checks to the US government anymore. They're not going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can keep spending however you want. You can let inflation be rampant, you can keep increasing these interest rates. They're not going to sit there and take it anymore because their job depends on making money. And if the U.S. dollar means nothing, and if it has very little value because of high inflation rates, then they make less money. So they're saying, okay, the author's saying we might see a little bit more of a recoil, and we may see a lot of people, a lot of investors at the systemic level, a.k.a. the people on Wall Street, may say, no, okay, we're going to we're gonna cut the amount of funding we're giving you until you can prove to us that you'll be able to retain the value of the dollar and that you're able to make smart monetary policy that will actually aid the American people, but more realistically will aid us as Wall Street bankers. So, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. Uh, I know I got a little lost in the weeds there, but if there's one conclusion, it's keep your eye on what's going on in other countries. Because though they're completely separate markets for the most part, we are a global system and we are all reliant upon one another. And especially when it comes to the UK, it is normally a bellwether for what happens in the United States. Normally that's more on a political level than on a financial level. But remember, one of the largest stock exchanges in the world and the leading one for years upon years is in London. So you just have to keep it in mind. Make sure that you have the perspective and don't just worry about U.S. news. Look outside the country. So our last article, and this is completely domestically focused, comes from The Intercept. The wealth of America's bottom 50% has doubled during the pandemic years. So as the American economy grows, in theory, everyone is lifted inch by inch, percentage point by percentage point. And that's what the author kind of starts the article with, saying that as the economy grows, we start to see increases in everybody's net worth. And the thing that they point out, though, is that the top 50% and even the top 1%, their net worth grows qu- a lot more quickly than the bottom 50%. And this has been a trend you know for decades upon decades. And you've seen very little change. You've just seen small incremental changes. They have a nice little graph here that Bernie Sanders asked the U.S. Congress to put together. And it, it highlights how the bottom 50% are only gaining tiny, tiny amounts of this wealth that's being generated. So you know, this is not an even increase across the board is what I'm trying to get at. The top gain a lot faster than the rest. And you may have heard the the sentiment recently, eat the rich. This is, you know, it's become overused in my opinion. And it, it really has some naive meaning behind it, or at least some idealistic thought processes behind it. So, you know, Take it as you will. But this is this is why that came about, because the bottom 50 percent, they are not getting their piece of the pie, essentially, because, you know, the bottom 50 percent, they are all involved in creating this economic value. They are all involved in helping the GDP grow. And why are they only getting such a small percentage proportion of it is what a lot of people argue. But you know it, it's very popular, it's become very popular throughout the last couple of years as these you know billionaire companies are making historic amounts, especially during the pandemic. if you look at Amazon, if you look at Walmart, if you look at Target, if you look at other retailers that were considered essential businesses that were able to stay open, their CEOs, their management teams and the companies themselves were able to make, billions and billions of dollars during the pandemic. And that's why you started to see this eat the rich talked about even more because this divide between the top and the bottom became ever more clear. But what you haven't probably heard about is that during that same time, the bottom 50 percent's average net worth has doubled And, you know, you really have to ask the question why, quote, the last several years have not been an economic disaster at all for the bottom 50 percent of U.S. households. Indeed, they've arguably been the best time during the past 30 years, end quote. So, you know, a large factor in why the net worth of these bottom 50 percent has really increased is house values during the pandemic. A lot of people saw the stock market crash and, you know, some people went to bonds, but a lot of people who had a good amount of money wanted a stable investment. So they started buying up houses. They started buying up property. So in turn, the housing value increased rapidly and for a lot of people in the bottom 50%, or at least in my parents' generation, and maybe even in Gen X and millennials, you know, I was always told, and they were always told, the way to really best experience the American dream in order to build your wealth and to build something for yourself is to own a house. Owning a house is the way to do that. And so a lot of this bottom 50% is part of that those generations. So they probably have put a lot of money into buying a house. It may not be the nicest thing in the world, but it's a house where they can be safe, where they can raise their children. So they made that investment, and since the housing prices everywhere shot up, their net worth went up when it's reevaluated under those new housing prices. Not to mention, there were also extremely low interest rates during this time, Meaning if they had an adjustable interest rate, uh, sorry, if they had a fixed interest rate, the evaluation went up even higher because the interest rate, if they were going to sell it, would be so low. So, but, you know, that's not the only factor. Quote, wages have not been decimated in real terms by inflation. That is, even as prices have gone up, wages have kept pace. The real median wage actually increased sharply at the beginning of the pandemic. It has since fallen sharply and is now almost exactly the same as during the first quarter of 2022, end quote. And, you know, you see that really sharp rise at the beginning of the pandemic because people that were unable to stay in work, they were laid off. So anyone that was still making money in this bottom 50 percent are probably the essential workers. And they're getting paid a good amount of money because it's a little bit riskier, or at least it was perceived as a little bit riskier to come in during a pandemic and to you know, risk their own health. And also, like I said, they're essential workers. So of course, you're going to get paid a little bit more. If you are needed to drive the food across America versus if you are a fancy boutique uh, seller, if you're a person, a retailer, who's there at a really fancy boutique, oh yeah, you, you can take a few months off, that's fine. But the people that drive the food across our country, the people that work at the factories that make some of our goods and food, the people that work at Walmart and other places that facilitate the sale of that food and so on and so forth, those people are probably not making the most money in the world. They're probably in the bottom 50%, not trying to be mean, not trying to discriminate, it's just probably how it is. Those are essential workers, so of course they're going to keep working, meaning the median income for these fifty, the bottom 50% is going to increase sharply at the beginning of the pandemic. Quote, according to the, Nash, the Washington Post and other media outlets, quote, low-income people have been hit the hardest by the recent inflation, and we must slow the economy and lower wages and hike unemployment for their benefit. According to the actual numbers, though, these are good times for many, many Americans in the poor 50%. That doesn't mean that millions aren't struggling, but the financial prospects for most were even worse in the past in a lower inflation world, a situation that did not excite the warm concerns of the corporate media. What we should be cons- concentrating on now is keeping the streak going, not bludgeoning the workforce into submission, end quote. And that's what the author is really getting at here, which is I've mentioned the historic change and the the doubling of the net worth. But there's another undertone here, which is we are actively risking this increase, this benefit to the bottom 50 percent with a lot of the policies that are trying to be implemented now. Like they said, they're trying to bring inflation back under control. In order to bring inflation back under control, we have to take money out of the economy, meaning companies have less money to pay their employees. Therefore, they are going to lay them off, which is going to raise unemployment. Jeremy Powell said this himself. He said that in order to get inflation under control, we're going to have to have a higher unemployment number. It's probably going to be around 8%, maybe 9%, something close to what happened during 2008. So the author's trying to point out here that, yes, we do need to get inflation under control, but that really is going to benefit the middle and upper class more than it's benefiting the the really, really bottom 50% of the people. And, you know, it's that game of balance. You really have to find that middle ground. And the author's kind of pointing out there really isn't a good middle ground here because if we let inflation go rampant, then you know at the end of the day it's going to hurt everybody it may hurt certain people more than others but it is going to hurt everybody and if we don't you know try to tackle this issue if we, sorry if we do try to tackle this issue and we have to raise unemployment it's going to very very negatively affect the people that already have it worse off so it's it's a really interesting balancing you know point of balance Uh, You know, we can't all be Thanos. We can't all risk everything in order to balance out the entire universe or the economic system. So, I think the author brings up some good points. And, you know, I think that you should leave this article wondering what is the right move forward. And if you're a person in the middle class, uh, you know, considered upper class, maybe you know, in that upper 50%, then you're probably like, no, no, please, I want I want the value of my dollar back. Please, thank you. I want my investments to keep growing, not to keep plummeting as they have over the last few months. And if you're listening and you're in the bottom 50%, you may say, okay, maybe we can be a little bit slower on tackling inflation and, you know, make sure that these wage increases and that the unemployment doesn't grow Too quickly, so that we can, you know, lock in some of the gains from these last few years. So just keep it all in mind. Remember, there's another perspective and it affects people differently. So we're going to move on to our daily delight. This one comes from Hiddenston Times. Baby Penguin refuses to stand still on weighing scale. And, you know, I kind of compare this. Have you ever? ever tried to convince a kid to do practically anything? Well, you know, it turns out it's not just human kids that like to make things hard. Quote, a cute video showing a keeper struggling to weigh a baby penguin has turned into a source of heartwarming entertainment for many on Twitter. The video shows the little one refusing to stand still on the weighing scale and creating a fuss. The sweet clip will make you say, babies are babies after all. End quote. And I really, I don't blame the little guy. I mean, I hesitate to step on the scale some days too. And and besides, you know, he's only three months old. He's holding on to some of that baby fat. You know, he doesn't want to be judged. He doesn't want to be fat shamed. He doesn't want to see that number on the scale. So I don't blame him whatsoever. Uh, I was being so sarcastic there, by the way. Quote, since being shared a day ago, the video has accumulated close to 26.2 million views and the numbers are only increasing the post has also received several likes and comments quote pick up the penguin stand on the scale put the penguin down subtract the riddle is solved suggested a twitter user "Alrighty, i'll be still psych wrote another imagining the penguin's thoughts So if you want to see any of the cute videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in that description below the like and subscribe button. Uh, Also, there will be my Twitter handle at your daily flip. If you want convenient daily news commentary, follow me there. Uh, Some days I also whenever it's Monday, Wednesday or Friday, I post the link to the podcast. So you don't have to go searching for it. You can just directly go to it from there. All right, with all that promotional, you know, stuff said, a little bit of self-hype, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.